I'm Jason Voss, Content Director for CFA Institute. Joining me today is Tomasz Sedlacek, uh, who is a PhD from Karlova University, where he lectures. In addition, he's the author of The Economics of Good and Evil. He routinely appears on media, uh, radio, and you're a columnist as well. Uh, welcome. Thanks for coming. Thank you for having me. Uh, so my first question, uh, for the audience who hasn't read your book or seen you speak, Contextualize for the audience, what, what's the topic of your book? <coughs> what do you write about? So, so I start with the Epic of Gilgamesh, which is the oldest text that we have, and I go through the Bible and the, and the, and the Greeks and the major philosophers that you know, influenced uh, the body that we today call the West. And um, um, what I try to do is sort of go against the flow because economics is, you know, we all know that it's very, very complex that economic touches, econ the economy touches every aspect of human life almost sure. today. Yeah. We don't know how to cope with that, so we went to extreme reductionism. You know, we really are going this sort of one mathematical way, and we think this is the only way that, that, that's, that's possible. What I'm trying to do, I'm trying to go against this, and I'm trying to you know, include everything again in sort of this right. renaissance way. So what I'm trying to do is I try to look for economics in myths, religions, philosophy, literature, movies, uh, which is modern mythology. Sure, sure. And uh, that's half of my book, and the other half of the book is trying to look for philosophy, mythology, belief systems, ethics right. in, in, in this field called economics. So it's fair to say you're trying to recontextualize modern economics using these ancient stories, yeah. which I'm guessing you think are perennial to the human condition. Yes, you said it. I mean, you really, I should be bringing you with uh, me. Well you said it much better than, well, <laughs> than, that's I, very kind. than I could. Yeah, I saw your speech earlier today uh, at the uh, 67th Annual Conference. Uh, it seemed that this was uh, an important part that, to your message, though you did not explicitly say it. And the it, my sentence is, uh, economics is too mathematical, it's too deterministic, and what we're missing is important narratives for people so that they can yeah. rehear yeah. what they're doing and what their choices are. Is that right? Yeah. You could even see this in philosophy. I mean, before, before uh, existentialism, before Kierkegaard and, and, and others, philosophy um, was too analytical, too technical. It had nothing to do with life. So people were asking questions that philosophy could no longer answer. So there is a branch of philosophy which is called analytical philosophy, which is logics and also sort of close to mathematics, very sort of technical. Right. And, 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 and uh, as long as that's one part of philosophy, it's fine, but it shouldn't be the whole of philosophy. And, um, and there was a very strong reaction from existentialists and say, no, we actually are interested in existential issues. So a little bit, li little bit like that, I'm also trying to sort of do a little bit maybe in, in, in economics, saying, well, analytical economics is fine, but that's just one way of looking at it. And if you read the classics, it's much more down the line of philosophy, ethics, and, and argumentation that's, that, that, that is far, far away from, from mathematics. So microeconomics is not your field, clearly, right? Because macroeconomics allows a greater narrative, clearly. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, uh, I, uh, when I was studying, I enjoyed micro, microeconomics. Now I'm working as a macroeconomist. But it's much more important to realize that micro and macro is not the, the whole picture. Right. There is something that's uh, smaller than micro, which is family relationship, personal. Sure, I sure. call it nanoeconomics. That's where people actually, that on personal basis, we relate to each other. 
but completely different uh, rules than we apply when we actually talk about microeconomics. So this is a whole life uh, right. that goes on in personal lives that's called nanoeconomics that is not reflected in economics. And then there is something that's above macroeconomics, I call it megaeconomics, right. and that's when a country goes bankrupt or a big company goes bankrupt. There again, we breach all the rules in between. Sure. So it seems that the economy, the way we've been studying it, only describes a part of life, and there is a huge chunk here and there where we, we use completely different um, rules of, of relation. Okay, well that's, that's actually a perfect segue into what I was going to discuss and ask you next, which is, okay, let's just assume for a moment a genie appears, grants you all your wishes uh, based on your prescription, like what you think should happen. What's the next move that Tom, uh, Tomas Sedlicek advocates for people? So, uh, are you now talking about the way economics is taught? Are you talking about macroeconomics? Are you talking about the way we believe? Or Let me give you a little bit more background, uh, and sorry to the audience as well. Um, Specifically in your speech, you uh, made a uh, you, you had an interesting analogy, right? That debt is very much like alcohol. Interest rates are very much like alcohol. Uh, we borrow from the future, uh, giddiness and pleasure now, but there's a hangover inevitably. Yeah. Um, and I think if I heard you correctly, you were advocating for, hey, let's stop, let's rethink this, let's uh, as economists advocate for stability as opposed to the drunkenness and then the inevitable hangover. Assuming all that's done and there's some sort of institutional answer. In other words, we've got to build an institution to make that happen. What's, what's the next step? Where would you start? Oh, what I think will happen or is in a way under a debate or it's a suggestion that I have from this perspective, you saw that mankind decided that it's better if politicians do not have the discretion over monetary policy. In right. other words, a politician should not be able to print money at will, because it's a huge temptation. It, I mean, just imagine having a, m a legal money printing device in your back office. I mean, you know that the sin of that is inflation and that you're really not creating value, you're really stealing people's right. value by printing new money. But you'd still do it. I mean, you would print money like crazy. Sure. Because why not? If and, you it, can. and it destroys, too, that, that understanding of scarcity. Yeah. And scarcity yes. and the fear of not being enough yeah. changes your thinking, makes it a little bit yeah. more rational. You'd, you'd become addicted to that, to that money printing machine. So today, a politician can no longer print money, but they can print debt, which is not the same thing, but it's you know quite similar. And I think we also, as civilization, we almost broke our neck over overdoing in, in, de in, in debting. That's what is the problem, not lack of growth, not all the other things that people talk about, but over-indebting, over-deadedness of, of our economy. That's what brought about the collapse in many European countries and also in many countries here in the United States. Right, yeah. So I think, or I suggest that this temptation should be removed and politicians should you know, compete on the quality of taxes and the quality of expenditure. That's the competition, not on how, who can indebt the economy more, more, ready, because more readily. Um, it would be more democratic and it would be more responsible if we actually sort of give this to an independent body, like we have done with monetary policy. Right, it's an sure. independent federal bank that is not directly responsible to being re-elected. Right. So they don't have to play the populist games. Eliminate the conflicts of interest. Eliminate the conflict of interests. Okay, so my final question for you. Uh, you refer to these ancient myths and these religious uh, stories from the Bible, yeah. Old Testament, etc. Uh, and the idea is that they still inform thinking today. You're a Czech, right? 
how does communism inform your thinking? Like, what's in the what's in the background of your psyche that's informed how you write and what you ca you're concerning? I think it's a nice position because capitalism is something new to us. Um, I was 12 when, when communism broke down. And there's, there's an interesting parallel, actually, if you think of it, because during communism, we had crises as well, but they were crises of supply. So, you know, economics is about demand and supply. We wanted sugar, but there was no sugar. We wanted razor blades, but there were shortages of razor blades and cars and all that. So the demand was healthy, but supply would, was collapsing all the time. Now we have an exactly opposite situation where there is tons of sugar, but nobody wants it anymore. There's, you know, 12 different types of razor blades, but right. we don't want that amount of cost. In other words, the demand is faltering and the supply is ready. Uh, what's I so, in other words, the economy today cannot eat everything it cooks. Right. So the government has to consume in its stead. This is how it creates budget deficit, it creates a situation as if there is demand, while in fact there is no demand. So the irony of our situation is, even though we cannot eat or we do not demand everything we supply, um, we are trying to solve the problem by, by cooking better and more. And instead of relaxing and say, okay, I mean, obviously, we don't have to work this hard because we don't. Right. Um, we are, we, we are um, cooking more even though we can't eat everything we cook. So that's one example. The second example, I've seen capitalism being born, sort of in right. fast forward notion. So what, you, what took you here 200 years from Klondike capitalism all the way till till very sophisticated rules of corporate governance today. Right, sure. We had to do this in sort of a laboratory over 20 years. Right. So some things you notice much better when they're in fast forward sort of motion. So so um, so it's maybe m easier for me to see the guts of, of capitalism uh, than it is for you because you've b been breathing it sure, sure. since your very, very childhood. Whereas we, so you are using these watches. Yeah. You don't know how they're made, like I don't know how they're made, but we had to construct these watches uh, sort of from, from sure. the scratch. So I know how important is issues such as trust are issues such as belief uh, and, and all these things that you take for granted because it's like eh. Right, I hear you. There's so many uh, interesting threads there, but we're out of time. Thanks very much uh, for joining us on this. If you'd like more information on this interview as well as others, go to www.cfainstitute.org. Thanks. Copyright 2014 CFA Institute. This program is designed to give accurate and authoritative information in regard to the subject matter covered. It is distributed with the understanding that CFA Institute is not engaged in rendering legal, accounting, tax, investment, or other expert advice. If legal advice or other expert assistance is required, the services of a competent professional should be sought.